Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Year in Politics from the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. We're going to be hearing from Byline Times political editor Adam Bienkoff and across the pond from Heidi Sigmund Kuda, reflecting on 12 months when number 10 Downing Street needed a revolving door attached and when Donald Trump announced a return. He may be in jail, though, before he's back in the White House. We shall see. Before that, though, just a reminder that we don't have any big media corporation behind us. There's no billionaire backing what we do. Uh, Independent, non-partisan journalism, which calls out corruption and tries to tell it like it is, is funded entirely by ordinary readers and listeners like you. People who subscribe to our wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You get details on how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a year, and it is the season for giving, so you might want to consider taking one out for a friend. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com, and as well as getting a fantastic monthly newspaper, you'll be helping to support this podcast as well. Let's welcome then Adam and Heidi. And Adam, what a year for UK politics. Three prime ministers at the last count in the last 12 months. (laughs) At the time of recording, yes, just just three prime ministers. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary year. I was sort of looking back through the archive last year, and so so much stuff that you know you just forget about. You know, there was a scandal at one point about an MP and tractors, which is just completely um, (laughs) I've completely forgotten about. But yes, it's it's extraordinary. I think when we when we look back, we're going to sort of see this year as the year when the Conservative Party destroyed its own government, really. I mean, this time last year, possibly a bit earlier in sort of November time, you look at the opinion polls back then, the Conservatives are actually ahead in the polls. And everything that has happened since then, and then they're now something like, in some polls, 25 points behind Labour. Everything that's happened since then has been almost entirely at their own hands. Nobody forced the Conservative Party, the Conservative Prime Minister, to have parties during lockdown and, and for that to be exposed. You know, nobody forced them to break the law even and for the police investigations to throw out the prime minister or to choose Liz Trust, the, the least popular prime minister we've had in history, according to, to some polls, or to then take that prime minister and to, to announce a mini budget, which crashed the economy and and had added thousands of pounds onto people's mortgages and, and onto their bills. None of what we've seen over the past years really can really be attributable to a mass rising in enthusiasm for the opposition, for the Labour Party and for Keir Starmer. It's all been off the back of complete own goals by the Conservative Party and the Conservative government, most of which they didn't need to take. And in Liz Truss, you had a prime minister who was hugely popular with the membership, perhaps mirroring the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn with mm. many Labour Party members. But sometimes the person who the ordinary party members support is not the person who, for one reason or another, resonates with the public. In Liz Truss's case, of course, she had a disastrous unofficial mini-budget overseen by her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, who was even shorter-lived at number 11 than she was at number 10. And is this kind of disconnect, I think, between party activists and the wider public? That's become really apparent this year. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. I think in defence, the sort of mild defence of Jeremy Corbyn, he was very unpopular by the end and he was never hugely popular, but the Labour Party did do better than expected in in 2017 and his policies in that election, Labour's policies in that elections 
were broadly popular with the public. Liz Truss was never popular. She wasn't popular in the summer when she was. we had that in, interminable selection campaign from the Conservative Party. She wasn't popular once she became Prime Minister. There was no bump in the polls. And she was massively, massively unpopular after she announced her, her mini budget. So looking back, I think many people were surprised by the appointment of Jeremy Corbyn for obvious reasons. He did have some successes before it all fell apart. Liz Trust was just disaster from right from start to finish, really. And quite extraordinary that that was uh, allowed to happen, really. And in the United States, Heidi, Donald Trump announcing his intention to stand again for president. But you marked our card from quite a long way out that the Senate hearings into the January the 6th insurrection might, as I suggested earlier on in the podcast, might see him in jail rather than in the White House. True. And that would not stop him from continuing to try to run for president in the hopes and the dream of having a immunity from all of his nefarious deeds. So when he made that announcement, we did a great piece in Byline Supplement where we showed his speech and took paragraphs and chunks of his speech and then matched it with uh, Professor Jason Stanley's book, How Fascism Works, where it showed all the different categories, the unreality, the propaganda, anti-intellectualism. It's all right there. And so it's, it's very important for Trump, who's an excellent propagandist and great at distractions, but it's very important for people to stay laser focused on what this is. And this is part of that lurch toward authoritarianism in our country. And what was so amazing and looking back on the year, and like Adam said, so much happened. And as I say, almost every episode, we can't memory hole any of it. But I think the best thing for me this year is thanks in large part to the January 6th committee. 2022 was the year Trumpism was rebuked. The committee didn't go after the network behind Trump, which was disappointing, but it landed enough punches to doom him. And what I mean by that is we learned that he knew he was lying about election fraud. We knew that he knew he was leading an army of violent militias to protect that lie and that they were out for blood to kill politicians, including his vice president, who had refused to go along with his schemes. So he was literally trying to overthrow the American government to install himself as essentially a dictator using radicalized conspiracy thinkers. And what's so sad about that is if anybody read the executive summary that was just released by the January 6th committee this week, person after person after person who was there, members of these violent militias said, we thought we were going to protect our president. We thought we were going to right a wrong. So it showed how radicalized their thinking had become. But it's very important to note that Trump also tried espionage, the fake electors scheme. He tried to strong arm Georgia to scare up additional votes like he was some sort of mob boss. And really the insurrection was pretty much the last resort to all the other tactics that he attempted. It's also very important to note, Adrian, that we learned the big steel lie was profitable. The January 6th committee revealed that he had earned a quarter million dollars on that lie. And so 
all of this is very important. All of this is evidence that this year we were still a democracy because the countries that attack us using our freedoms against us don't have the kind of freedom to have a committee that actually does the type of investigating that this committee did. But it's really kind of great to step back and look at the year and remind ourselves that the biggest loser in our midterm elections was Trump. You know, the election deniers that he backed, many of them lost. Many of the candidates that he backed lost. Mike Pence is looking pretty weak as he clearly was the target of uh, what was essentially an attempted assassination. And he's still really backing away from condemning Trump. So, of course, Trump is being criminally investigated by the Department of Justice. And uh, and yet and yet and yet the active measure still continues. So we're going to see who they're going to back moving into uh, 2023. But there were signs, weren't there, in the midterms that the electorate, as you've suggested, were starting to be Trump resistant. Partly that was because some people sussed Trump out who perhaps had previously supported him. It was also because the politics of reaction had come into force through the Supreme Court judgment overturning Roe versus Wade. And that persuaded many younger voters, particularly many younger female voters, to turn out to try and ensure that hard-won reproductive rights for women were not denied to women all over the United States. The fall of Roe versus Wade, for me, is just a reminder that culture war is war. In that one act, there was a a massive overturning of what really is women's health care rights, Women's rights, we can't lose sight of what it is. We can't get caught up in the culture war part of it. This was basically a way to take out a major swath of the population's freedoms. Our freedoms were denied in that one moment in time. And it's interesting to me that women's rights are being challenged globally. We look at the revolt in Iran. We know what's happening in Poland, where women are actually dying because they're not receiving the health care because of these culture wars that are waged. We in America had a 10-year-old who had been raped, who had to be flown out of state to receive health care. And that child is being weaponized as part of these culture wars. And what I learned, again, I, I always cite Jason Stanley, because anybody who's interested in the work that you do and the work that Byline Times and Byline Supplement does. Really, for me, how fascism works is that Bible to really understand our time. And when you are able to make a move like that, you are denying half the population's freedoms, which is how authoritarian capture works. So yes, it resulted in an incredible turnout. I hope that People intend to work as hard in 2023 to prepare for 2024 as they did in the last few months of 2022. However, we cannot ever rely on the kindness of conservative judges or radicalized judges. And so we have many concerns about what could come next. They have way too much power and half the population in America lost rights. Adam, we heard less about culture wars in the UK in the last 12 months, I would suggest, but we were very much taken up by a cost of living crisis, driven in part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February. There's no denying that that was a factor. It also seems indisputable that Brexit 
has impacted the UK economy. Ministers don't usually like to acknowledge that and address that, but most economists would say so as well. And we ran an episode of the podcast called Lady Chatterley's Brexit, which was addressing really with Chris Gray, an academic, the fact that neither Labour nor Conservative wanted to talk about this perhaps single most defining feature of the modern British political landscape. Yes, I think you're right. I think it's it's unavoidably the case that much of the uh, cost of living pressures that we've seen this year are due to Ukraine and the hangovers from the pandemic. But unlike most other major economies, the UK is still smaller than, than it was before the start of the pandemic. And most economists suggest that, that is that is down to Brexit. And I, I do think if we look back at the sort of collapse, the unravelling of this Conservative government over the past year, I think in hindsight, it has been their refusal to take the the issue of cost of living seriously. And we saw that particularly in the Conservative leadership contest over the summer. It was actually quite amazing at the time how little the question of cost of living featured in the debates. You know, Instead, Rishi Sunak and, and Liz Truss were talking about things like taxation a lot, and sort of fringe issues, cultural war issues, trans rights, solar farms as well was, was one issue that kept on coming up, up again and again in the debates, rather than the sort of the fundamental cost of living issues that the vast majority of people were really concerned about. And of course, Brexit as well didn't feature at all in those debates. So it did feel back then that the Conservative Party was sort of, the contest was taking place in almost like an alternate reality. And I think that has led to the, uh, the situation that the Conservative Party are in in now that it led to them to choose Liz Truss, who didn't care about dealing with that issue. And it then led to Liz Truss holding a mini budget, which was had a massive impact on the economy. And by some estimates, wiped off £40 billion from, from the size of the economy, which, again, has made it much harder for the government to deal with the current cost of living pressures and also the pressures we're seeing with, with strikes at the moment. And also Brexit as well. One study by the European Centre for Reform suggests that it's already wiped 5.5% off of the size of GDP in, in the UK, about 40 billion. So you're talking about 40 billion from Brexit, 40 billion from the mini budget. That's a hell of a lot of money that's been wiped off of the UK economy in which the government doesn't have to spend. And this is all self-inflicted. These are two decisions, Brexit and the mini budget, which were own goals by the Conservative Party and the Conservative government. Unfortunately, these issues, and particularly the issue of Brexit, is not something that the opposition and Labour Party feel, seem that confident in talking about. And uh, Keir Starmer was asked recently whether he believed that rejoining the single market would would help reverse some of that damage. And he said, no, it wouldn't. And actually, some of the people around him suggested it may even hurt the economy to go back into the EU or back into the to the single market. So I think it's very clear that the that Brexit and the Conservative economic policies have had a massive impact on on people's living standards over the last year. That's really got through to the public. You can see it in the polls on Brexit. You can see people, even Conservative voters now, saying that Brexit has done more harm to the economy than than good. The public are, are shifting on, on Brexit. The, the public can see what the Conservative's economic record is. But the opposition aren't really in a, in a space yet where they are willing or able to capitalise on that issue. So I do feel that we're slightly in limbo and we're heading towards a general election where I think one of the big issues should be about UK's place in Europe. But I mean, it's not looking like that's going to be the case right now. 
Indeed not. And you and I have spoken on previous podcasts about what Keir Starmer does stand for. He doesn't stand for returning the UK to the European Union. In fact, quite the opposite. He's flatly said that is not part of Labour's plan, even though I know polls that have featured on bylinesupplement.com have suggested that many Labour voters don't believe that. But publicly, anyway, that's Starmer's stated stance So the question of what Keir Starmer does stand for is not always clear to voters. Talking to some of his allies and people close to him this week, it's clear to me that the the Labour leadership, his leadership, is almost like a single issue leadership at the moment. And that issue is getting back into government and getting power in the UK again. That is fundamentally what they, they care about. And absolutely anything that they believe is going to hinder them in doing that they're just not going to talk about it they're not going to deal with it they're not, not even going to discuss it and brexit from their perspective firmly falls into that category i think a lot of that is down to the fact their experiences in the 2019 election when keir starmer did actually force the labor party to take a pro second referendum position in the run-up to that election and the perception within the labor party actually most wings of the labor party is that that did them quite a bit of damage. Boris Johnson went into that election with a get Brexit done message. That was his kind of central message. The Conservatives ended up with a, a sizable majority, largely off the back of winning over Labour voters in the so-called Red Bull seats. And that's kind of stuck with Keir Starmer and the people around him, even though, as we say, I believe the electorate has moved on from then and we have left the EU. And even Conservative and Leave voters now see that Brexit hasn't bought the benefit that was promised to them. Nevertheless, the Labour Party and specifically Keir Starmer and those people around him remain incredibly wary about sort of taking that lead of reversing their position on that. And so they're just sort of sticking firmly to the message that this isn't about Brexit. This is about a Conservative Brexit. This is about the Conservatives handling of Brexit and their their handling of the economy. And you can kind of understand the, the politics of that. But I, I do think we're looking at these polls now every month and year that goes by, more and more people are saying that Brexit was a mistake, more and more people are saying that we should rejoin the EU. The economy is not growing. We're getting poorer in, on relative terms compared to other major economies with each month and, and year that passes. I just think it's unavoidable in the medium to long term to avoid talking about this central issue of the UK's place in Europe. And I do think ultimately... Labour, whether it's before the election or, or once, if and when they're in government, is going to be forced to to confront that issue. It's just that at the moment, they're just not there. Heidi, this was the year that Putin invaded Ukraine. Of course, Ukrainians will remind us that he actually first invaded Ukraine in 2014, eight years ago, two significant regions of Ukraine. But in terms of the latest incursion, the world sees it as Putin's invasion from February of this year. You're concerned about that, obviously, but you're also concerned about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And you've argued on this podcast that really they're two sides of the same coin, whether it's a physical war in Ukraine, whether it's an information war being waged on behalf of Russia in the Twitter sphere, this is all one big war. Yeah. And as I was listening to Adam speak, I was thinking about how in my studies of information warfare, 
you know, we tend to ask binary questions, but the point is chaos. America has been spun into chaos since 2016. And for me, I look at Brexit and the information war that preceded it and think about the subsequent chaos that you're seeing in the UK. And here are two countries that represent the West and liberal democracies continually under siege. And I can't help but tie this into what for me really looks like a different type of world war, but the patterns of Russian aggression, I believe are the same across the globe, economic warfare, religious warfare, where religions are turned into cults, information warfare, Brexit. And we look at Ukraine basically defending freedoms for the West, and it's not going to stop there. For me, this is all about Russia's trying to advance global imperialism. And why I believe it ties into Musk is that Elon Musk just burned $44 billion to run what I believe is the Twitter operation. I believe Musk is a chaos agent. If you don't believe me, then I'm going to give you a quote from America's incredible historian of Italian fascism who studies all of these strong men. She said Musk is a pro-Kremlin chaos agent and troll with his hate views, tech fetish, and racist obsessions with demographics. It was inevitable he would become a Putin puppet. That is coming from Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who... I think is probably one of the most important scholars addressing and looking at these issues. And Musk himself is connected to a network uh, behind the insurrection, behind QAnon. I call it the PayPal Bratva. You can look at his allies and what they fund and how those political action committees led to Pizzagate and QAnon. And I see this as the big network. And again, don't take it from me. Take it from the FBI. In 2014, the FBI warns that Russia is infiltrating America through Silicon Valley. And here we are a decade later. America looks a little bit different. I'm sure so many people are disappointed to hear this. They want to believe in the myth of Musk. But if Fiona Hill says he's transmitting messages for Putin, what more do we need to know? Fiona Hill, a British-born security expert now based in the United States. Yes, a Russian geopolitical analyst. But again, Byline Supplement is giving us an opportunity to do incredible work. And an article that I wrote that Peter Jukes titled Unmusked, very brilliantly, I think, really shows how Twitter is being weaponized and turned into basically the equivalent of a Russian propaganda outlet under the guise of a social media platform. He's platforming QAnon liars, okay? These are people that got banned because of the Nazi rhetoric that they were promoting. He brought them all back. The Daily Stormer's editor is back. These are people who ran operations against America's mind with Pizzagate and all of that. We can't look at this, I believe, as anything other than information warfare. And I actually posit that we need to probably stop calling it information warfare because this is war. It's also telling the people that he interacts with on on Twitter. There's a huge amount of far right people. He's not interacting with sort of mainstream journalists and commentators or politicians. These are all real fringe groups. I do think the end is possibly nigh for 
for Twitter. The economics of their situation, it looks looks really bad. His handling has, has wiped off a lot of worth of Twitter. He paid too much for it in the first place. Tesla, his main company, is in real dire financial straits as well. He doesn't seem to have a viable business model. He seems to be antagonizing the sort of core membership of, of Twitter, the celebrities and public figures and journalists. So I don't really see how he's going to be able to turn this around. His idea for a, a subscription model, Twitter Blue, that's highly unlikely to bring in anything like the sort of revenues that he needs to keep it afloat. And he's losing a lot on a lot more, it seems, on, on advertising. So I, I struggle to see how he's going to turn it around, really. As we look towards 2023, Adam, can you do a little bit of crystal ball gazing? Give us one prediction for the year ahead. In the immediate term, we're going to see a lot more disruption in terms of strikes. I think there was an opportunity for the government to try and calm things down this week. And last week, nursing unions offering to meet and discuss pay and to come to some sort of agreement. Huge amount of public support for nurses on their strikes. They've refused even to meet with them and to discuss that. So I think we can see a lot more industrial action. Rishi Sunak refusing to to even think about uh, raising pay for public sector workers. But I do think sort of more broadly, there is just this sort of dawning sense, I think, in the UK at the moment that nothing really is is working, you know, in the public sector and in, in the private sector. You, you order a parcel, it doesn't seem to arrive. You try and get a doctor's appointment, you have to wait a week or more. Your routine operations are delayed for months. You know, you, you send your kids to, to school and you get begging letters from their teacher because they can't afford to buy books for their classes. You know, you want to heat your house, but you can't afford to do so. We're hearing that there could be power cuts and, and you get letters from the energy company to, advising you what to do in the event of a power cut. You need to go and visit, visit people at Christmas, but the trains aren't working because they're on strike. House gets burgled, but no you know, police officers can't don't come uh, routinely to deal with burglaries. You have a serious accident. Ambulance doesn't come for hours. Schools are oversubscribed. You know, just this general sense that nothing really is working. And I think the Conservative Party, certainly over these strikes, had hoped there will be a backlash against the strikers. But I think that, number one, we haven't seen that. And I think the reason we haven't seen that is because there is just this general sense, I think, in the population that nothing is really working. And if it was just like a, if it was just a couple of strikes, if it was just like the train strikes, but everything else was fine, I think people would be more sort of willing to blame trade unions or to blame the, the opposition. But I think that the fact that we use in so many parts of sort of life in the UK, things just don't fundamentally seem to be working after 12 to almost 13 years now of Conservative government. I do think that the normal sort of lines of defence for a Conservative government just aren't effective anymore. And I think we're going to have more of that sense over the coming months where just public sector is going to start falling apart. The NHS already under massive strain is going to come under more strain massive recruitment uh, crisis in, in many parts of the public sector, including in schools. I think that's going to get worse. I, I think this is going to then be reflected in the local elections coming up in, in, the, in the spring. And then I think at that point, if Rishi Sunak hasn't been able to turn around the problems in the public sector, if he hasn't been able to turn things around with the trade unions, if polls are still looking really bad for, for him and the Conservative Party. And I do think we could have another sort of point of turmoil for his leadership in the spring after the local elections and we could even have a possibility of, a, of yet another leadership contest in which god help us we could see a, a possible 
another return for for Boris Johnson attempting to become prime minister again. So although things seem sort of relatively calm compared to what we've seen over last year at the moment, I think over the coming months, things are going to become quite fractious again. I think the war against uh, liberal democracy obviously is going to continue. And I look at it as a war for humanity and a war for what is decent. We have a Republican controlled house. That's going to be a problem. They're going to continue to distract and do heinous things that cause outrage. But I do think that it is going to be a year marked by heroes and villains. And I think that we're going to start to really be able to see who's the hero and who's the villain. And I'll just leave you with this. Zelensky spoke in Washington and he said something very important. He said the Russians have a chance to be free when they defeat the Kremlin in their minds. And why I think that's important is that I think that even with the Republican-controlled Congress, it is my hope people are going to start being able to see what's really happening and that they will be able to start to see who is good and who is decent and who is continually trying to radicalize them toward the darkness and making decisions that go against their own best interests. So I'm predicting some stark clarity between heroes and villains. Heidi, thank you very much indeed. Thanks to Adam as well. And of course, as well as the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper and our website, bylinetimes.com. There is our new platform as well, which they both mentioned, bylinesupplement.com. Extra byline output. Check that out at bylinesupplement.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I would encourage you to take out a subscription to the Byline Times, A, because it's brilliant, and B, because it helps to fund this podcast and keeps us and at Byline Radio on the air as well. In the meantime, it rests on me to wish you all a very happy Christmas and a happy new year. We'll see you all again very soon. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Heidi. And thanks to Harvey White, who does so much great work on the production side as well of these podcasts. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.